Hello and welcome to Land Unlocked, a collaboration from the Food Farming and Countryside Commission and the Farmgate Podcast. I'm Finlow Castain, the Chief Executive of Farmwell, and in this series I'm talking about land use with influential figures from the UK and around the world in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow this November. In this programme, we're focused on water. As precipitation patterns change, how can we ensure consistent year-round water availability for crops and livestock, and how can we manage land better to reduce the risk of flooding for downstream communities. Emma Howard-Boyd is the chair of the UK Environment Agency, an ex-officio board member of the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and was the UK Commissioner to the Global Commission on Adaptation. Stuart Roberts is Deputy President of the National Farmers Union and an arable and livestock farmer in Hertfordshire. Stuart has also worked for DEFRA and the Food Standards Agency and previously served on the boards of Red Tractor and AHDB. Welcome both. Morning, Finlow. Good morning. Good to be here. Stuart, let me come to you first. Thinking broadly in the UK, how has precipitation and the water coming onto farms from surrounding land changed over the course of the last 20 years? Yeah, over the last course of the last 20 years, you've probably only got to think about the course of the last 20 months, actually, in, in some ways. And I think there is no two years that are the same. I think if you go back, I look at my farm records that go back decades. I look at my neighbours, which happen to be Rothamsted uh, Experimental Station, which go back over over a century plus and we've always had variable weather but what we are seeing and I think it is becoming ever more clear is we're seeing more extremes and we're seeing them more frequently so those that that want real evidence of climate change if you like we are seeing that evidence so we're seeing more floods we're seeing more droughts but I suspect actually on average the range the total volume of rainfall is not massively wildly different but when it comes is what's important. So we are seeing, let's say, more extremes of both dry uh, and wet. Um, and I think for me that that feeds straight into the discussion that, that hopefully we're going to have today about yeah, what do we need to put in place to, to deal with that very different set of circumstances rather than it's a bit damp all 12 months of the year to it's very wet and it's very dry. Uh, and how can we, you know, move water, store water, etc. So I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion, I hope. And it's interesting, isn't it? You I mean, you talk about evidence of climate change. And of course, there's probably few people in the country who are more aware of the changes that we're seeing in terms of weather patterns. I agree, I think. And I'm not sure if this is the right phrase, but I'll use it anyway. I get quite excited about climate change, actually, because I think on the one hand, we as farmers are absolutely part of the solution. And I know from previous discussions, Emma and I have had on this that that farming is absolutely critical to, to solving some of the challenges around climate change. I think that's a big opportunity for us. But you're absolutely right. I can't think of any other sector of the economy, any other part of society, arguably, that won't feel the effects of the real effects of, of climate change first. You know, we can't put our offices inside. It's one of the great things about farming is that actually dealing with the climate, dealing with weather um, and its variability is, is a challenge. Um, it also gives opportunities opportunities but we are arguably as i say the first people to see that and and therefore as an industry you know we we have a responsibility to be a big part of the solution because actually 
we're also the recipients of a big part of the of the problem and the consequences that come from it. It's interesting framing because you talk there about farming being first, you know, farmers uh, being first responders, really, in the changes in patterns that we're facing and how farmers respond as first responders has a huge impact on other people, whether there's enough food available or indeed, as we're talking about today, whether that water hits downstream communities and indeed whether you've got enough. So in terms of your farm, Stuart, has it changed the way that you manage water it has and i um so look just by by a little bit of background so i am uh 150 meters above sea level i'm 24 miles north of marble arch we're pretty heavy clay so we don't suffer too badly with droughts and we're we're on top of a hill so we don't suffer too badly with floods so if i go back 10 years if somebody was said to me my farm has an impact of water i sort of flippantly said well the reality is by the time my farm floods the whole of london's going to be under an awful lot of water before it gets to me and there'll be a bigger problem but actually the more time i've spent with people who are are interested in this topic i've become fascinated so i actually i i'm a real i reckon i must be one of the country's biggest in enthusiasts around water now. I find it fascinating because what I've now got to understand much better is the the importance of entire catchments, the importance of everywhere in the country. The fact that what happens on my farm does have an impact. You may not see it on my farm. It may manifest itself downstream. It may manifest itself in an urban area. It may manifest itself on somebody else's farm or in a commercial operation. So actually, we've all got that responsibility to manage water. And we've done a fair bit on our farm. So we have changed some of our cultivation techniques. We have looked at putting in place some more permanent pasture. But probably the most exciting one, and the one I get really excited about, uh, this was over the period of the last year, um, we've just put a fairly big investment in place in terms of a, effectively a new farmyard, for, for want of a better word. It's a set of new buildings, and we're capturing every drop of water off that. And from my calculations so far, uh, and so far it is um, proving itself, from our farming operations, we will not have to use a drop of mains water for any of our farming operations. That's fantastic. And that clearly has a, a, look, there's an economic benefit to that, although I did spend a slightly eye-watering amount of money on it. But the reality is there is an economic benefit, but it's also the right thing. It is doing my bit because otherwise that water's going somewhere else. So I, I think there's great opportunities. And, and ultimately for me, the next big question is how can I expand that across my existing buildings? Uh, and then think about, well, I've then got too much water. So actually, should I be looking at some more water intensive cropping? So actually I see big, exciting projects around fruit, veg, around nuts, around other areas where I've now got that water, so let's make the most of it. It's interesting to think about retrofit in terms of farms, uh, farm outbuildings and uh, and so on as well. That's, that's, that's why I started with the new building, because it was a damn yeah. sight easier than fitting it on the old building. Indeed, so you've got the new build, then you've got the retrofit, not just of the buildings, but then there's there's also the kind of the retrofit of the way that you manage the land as well, which will, which will make that difference. So Emma, the Environment Agency has a, a broad range of responsibilities, of course, in relation to water. In terms of water, Water and agricultural land use. What are the Environment Agency's chief priorities? So really exciting to be here today having this conversation with Stuart because uh, I think what he's immediately drawn out is some of the practical things we can get on and do around water. And one of the things we need, those of us focusing on water need to do is make sure that water is way up the agenda alongside carbon, because it's such a, will have such a huge impact 
in terms of how we cope with the changing wet weather patterns that we're seeing. And Stuart's talked about that. I very much see it in my role as chair of the Environment Agency in terms of some of the visits that I have done over the last couple of years in incident mode, where literally we have flip-flopped from too much water to too little water within weeks. And we've also started seeing the layering of impacts from a water perspective as well. When you start combining prolonged dry weather with a heat wave, that is when we can move to moments where issue of water supply can become critical to certain parts of the country and to farmers in particular. So our priorities, given that we are the delivery body for England on flood, but we also are the environmental regulator, which includes responsibilities around water, is to move into what needs to be an integrated uh, framework for managing water. It would be very fair to say that over past years, government thinking, organisational thinking has probably been seen too much in silos on the issue of water. One of the things that we did with our flood strategy when we published it last May, alongside DEFRA's work on flood, was to make sure that we were focusing as much as possible on integrated water management. The flip side of too much water is too little water. And we need to find better ways of managing water on the land, storing it in terms of excessive plenty for those moments where, which can happen within a short period of time where we do find ourselves with too little water. So this has got to be uh, alongside this being the decade for delivery on the climate change and focusing on net zero, we need to be prioritising our work on water as well. It's so good to hear that. And I think it's really interesting the way that you framed that initially around um, connecting carbon and water management, because the two are so integral to each other. Uh, and the way that we manage land and we manage water can change land from being a carbon sink to a carbon source uh, and, you know, and vice versa. Do you feel that there is a real sense that those silos are genuinely being broken down and that people really are starting to work in a, in a more joined up way? There is no doubt in my mind that uh, people are working in a more joined up way across government. One of the, the best ways to illustrate that is uh, a role that I have in relation to infrastructure as the Environment Agency is the infrastructure provider for DEFRA. I'm part of a cross government steering group focused on infrastructure and we're roughly 1 billion. If you take the 2020 allocation and investment into infrastructure, roughly 40 billion, we're 1 billion of that. But I'm now meeting regularly with senior officials across all of the key infrastructure departments and see myself very much as the voice, not just of net zero, but preparing for climate shocks, the whole resilience piece, and also making sure that nature, nature's recovery is seen as having a core role in this. 
And that absolutely links to the way land is managed. Fantastic. I want to ask you about the future, Emma. Climate change, clearly, you know, we've, we've discussed it. It's already disrupting UK rainfall patterns, more extreme weather, more flooding, more droughts. But thinking about both the best and the worst case uh, global warming scenarios, how much more change do you think that we should be expecting in the next 20 years? So we do a lot of our scenario planning with the Met Office. We have a joint venture, the Flood Forecasting Centre, where we combined their metrological data with our hydrological data and uh, look at when and where we might expect flooding. We also work with them on the scenarios. They feed those into the Climate Change Committee and other parts of government and private organisations as well. And I think what we're beginning to see is what came out in the last set of predictions, which is warmer, wetter winters, and then what we're seeing in terms of drier weather. I don't think we can put a precise figure on what we expect, but everything that I'm seeing and everything that I am hearing, not just from UK-based scientists, but global scientists, and we're expecting a whole range of new um, scenarios, new reports coming out from the IPCC later this year, is that it feels like things are speeding up. So we need to look at every investment decision that we are making through the lens of climate change, making sure that it is uh, thinking about net zero, embedding net zero into that, preparing for climate shocks and working very closely with nature. That's why we at the Environment Agency, whilst having responsibility for flood and coastal erosion risk management in England, made a commitment to net zero by 2030 because we know that as we invest in flood schemes, we need to make sure that they're not only resilient, but building in net zero commitments as well and actually delivering on that in the way that we are building those schemes using the best technology to make sure that they are as low carbon as possible today. Stuart, did you want to come in there? Yeah, if I, if I could. And I want to go back to something that Emma said earlier on, which was about how we need to make sure we put this issue and water in particular right up the agenda, because I think she's absolutely highlighted there why it's so important. But I also think that we all do this and I do it. We look at, if you like, flood and drought as avoiding negatives. We look at them very defensively. And I also think, actually, we should spin it the other way and look at it in an offensive way. So we have, at times, too much water. We have, at times, too little water. Often it's in the wrong place, as as Emma articulated earlier. But when you look at food production, for example, in lots of different places in the world, actually, one of the things that the UK will have going forward is availability of fresh water. When we look at where our fruit and veg comes from, for example, something we don't grow anything like enough of in this country, and we're importing lots of fruit and veg from parts of the world that are already short of water and arguably will be even shorter in years to come, then actually I see an opportunity UK, but only if we invest. Because at the minute, what we're doing is we're taking a defensive approach, if you like, to floods, and rightly so. And we end up pumping 
hundreds of thousands and millions of gallons of fresh water into the North Sea at some times of the year. And at other times of the year, we're struggling and we're having to cut abstraction, etc. And if we can put the right infrastructure in place, if we could put the right investment in place, if we could put the, uh, if you like, the political ambition in place, you know, I look at the budget that there is there for something like HS2, you know, a fraction of that budget could revolutionise the water infrastructure in this country. And I tell this story. About two years ago, I met with a group of farmers at the Norfolk show who were really struggling with abstraction licenses. There was a real shortage of water in the area. And literally 24, almost to the minute, 24 hours later, I moved 50 miles north. I was meeting with a group of farmers in Lincolnshire and I was watching their fields that at the time were under six feet of water and we were busy pumping that water out into the North Sea. We have a massive opportunity in the UK if we can harness this properly, if we can work together. And I think actually the Environment Agency and ourselves are working much closer together than we have historically. It's not just silos within government and agencies. It's also how industry and, and the agency work together on things. And when it comes to water, I see that call to put it right at the top of the political agenda. It will be water that people see. It will be water that manifests itself as the impact of climate change. Carbon is almost this sort of anonymous thing, whereas water's real, you can see it. And I just couldn't echo more Emma's points about how important we need to get this issue. Emma, I want to come back to you, and I'm just curious about that scenario planning that you were talking about. And I wonder what those scenarios take into account. Is it is it just, you know, water and water level rise, or are you including the potential impacts of degrading or regenerating soil health and biodiversity uh, and the impacts of, uh, for example, additional housing? House building on floodplains. A huge amount of data goes into the scenarios that we're working on and involving others. So I've already talked about the projections that we work with the Met Office in terms of environmental impacts of climate change, um, such as river levels, flood risks. A lot of that is done by ourselves. And then we factor in a whole range of other detail uh, that working in partnership with others. So whether it's water companies, land managers, the, the role that different forms of land management can play. All of this needs to be factored into the way we work with water. Some of that is set out in quite um, detail in our flood strategy. And we set out a flood strategy out to 2100 because this is a massive long-term issue that we need to work on. But in May this year, we published an action plan for the next five years. And Stuart will know this because the NFU is one of our partners. But within that action plan, we have set out things that we want to do in real life, practical things. And one of the pilot areas that we're working on with the NFU is the FENS. And again, using this next five years to trial different ways of working to understand how the work in the fens on integrated water management, even though it starts off with a flood focus, can help us in other parts of the country. And this is what we need to do, move policy and ambition to real projects where we actually trial different ways of land management and understand the practical things that can be done. 
Stuart talked about investment and looking at this through a positive lens. One of the things that we did, again, during the course of last year with DEFRA, with Ofwat, the economic water regulator, with the other water regulators, the Drinking Water Inspectorate um, and uh, Consumer Council for Water, was put out a call to water companies to accelerate investment in water-related work that could enhance a green recovery and bring in jobs. And that led to nearly three billion pounds worth of investment. About a billion pounds of that was new money that wasn't in the current price review. And that shows how the private sector can get behind investment in integrated water management. One of the water companies involved with that issued shares, this is Seven Trent, on the back of their plans. And those shares were four times oversubscribed within a couple of hours of announcing those additional shares, which shows that there is money from the institutional markets to invest in some of the large scale integrated projects that we need to see in order to manage water fit for this century. And what we've all got to do is recognise the different parts that we play in pulling this all together to lead to action on water. You're talking about real examples there, and I think it's it's worth looking at one or two real examples to see uh, you know, where responsibility lies and what can actually be done. And so if I think of Bewdley, on the River Severn in Worcestershire, near where I grew up, there's always been flooding there, but it's now more frequent, it's regularly much higher than it was before, with severe flooding in the town becoming a fairly semi-regular and nationally newsworthy event. Now, the Severn watershed is enormous with multiple opportunities to capture the rainfall and to slow that flow of water from the land even before it reaches the towns and meets Environment Agency flood defences. So my question, Stuart, is... Whose job is it to prevent flooding? It is everyone's job. I think Emma just articulated that really well, that, that actually we've all got a role to play. Now the solution lies in multiple hands. And I think farmers absolutely have a role to play. But I think this is where we also need to look at, at how we fund some of this. So I know of farmers all over the country who absolutely get the role they need to play and the role our farms need to play in preventing flooding downstream. I know of no farmer who would argue we should flood a town rather than flood farmland that is upstream of of that town or that commercial business. Therefore, farmers are part of that solution. But we need to make sure there is a a funding stream for that. Because actually, I, I struggle to think of a better public good that farmers can provide than actually alleviating flood water from urban areas and ultimately potentially saving lives. But I also hear of way too many examples of where farmland's been flooded. We haven't got the infrastructure in place to get that water off quickly. And then we have a squabble about compensation and about values and the rest of it. And I think we need to absolutely have that. And it's almost a it's a contractual relationship. If I am providing a public service, which is preventing flooding downstream, then I have a role to play. But also how I farm my land. Let's have discussions around that. Let's have discussions about having the infrastructure in place to get the water off. You know, one of the issues often is not the water arriving in the first place. It's actually how long it takes to get it off. And let's prioritise that. Let's invest in that. Let's value that. 
I know a, a farmer up near Selby who I think on four or five occasions in one year, his farm was flooded, which directly stopped the flooding of Selby itself. Yet we haven't got a proper arrangement in place to, to properly manage that, to properly recognise that, reward that, etc. And I think this is, for me, a really exciting area. It's no one person's problem. Farmers are absolutely a component of it, as is the Environment Agency and some of their flood defences, as are householders and actually how they build resilience into to properties and, and, and developers have a role to play, the water companies have a role to play. Yet we all do. And I think that's one of the most interesting bits here. And, and it's about how do we all bring something to the table in an integrated water strategy that actually complements each other. And it is a, it's an unusual way of working because quite often as a farmer or as a developer or as a whatever, we look to the regulator to give us the answer or the regulator just looks to regulate us to tell us what to do. And actually this new world that we are going to have to inhabit is going to need different relationships. So actually we're going to have to work better together. We're going to have to understand each other better. We're going to have to understand that uh, an accident at one point in a catchment has a consequence somewhere else in a catchment. Now, if that's a positive consequence, that's great. If it's a negative consequence, what can we do to address that? And ultimately, that comes down to relationships. It comes down to, to communication. And it comes down to some of the conversations that, that Emma and I, I have on on relatively frequent basis, which is which is great. And we we see ourselves actually in, in the, the, the flood and coast action plan. We see ourselves as a component of delivering the actions. Our own integrated water strategy absolutely highlights that. Um, but we've also got to recognise that that you can't just dump water on farms and expect farmers not to be compensated, rewarded, paid or have the infrastructure in place. And, and, and farmers are ready for that up and down the country. But we need others to be part of that journey as well. I'd like to start talking uh, more specifically about what actually happens on farms and how that water gets managed. I wonder what role soil in particular plays in the Environment Agency's approach to water management and flood risk alleviation. It is one of the key ingredients that we look at across a catchment and understand that on land, how that land has managed, would be managed how porous the soil is, how uh, where the water goes can be inextricably linked to what happens when we have extreme rainfall events. And around the country, and if we can go back to Budley, there is an increasing emphasis on how we look at catchments from a water perspective, and then how we bring in partnerships to look at every single aspect of how water needs to be managed throughout that catchment. And with Budley in the Severn Valley, we now have a partnership, the River Severn partnership, up and down the river to look at what needs to happen all the way down the River Severn, starting up in those, those parts of the country where there is potentially more room for water to be stored on land. And to Stuart's point, we have a real opportunity with reform of CAP, with environmental land management, to look at how do we reward farmers 
for the role that they play in terms of storing water on their land, particularly during flood events. So what our action plans do is set out all of the things that need to be explored. And we have the national one, but we've used this model after flooding events in Cumbria, in the Calder Valley, where we have set out what needs to happen we have taken a strategic overview, but also need to recognise that a longer catchment, there will be many different parties and partners that need to take responsibility for specific actions. And we set out the timelines as to when we should see action and update it so that these plans become dynamic. But going back to your original question, soil has a place alongside all of the other things that we need to look at as the Environment Agency when it comes to our primary responsibility and duty to protect people and homes from flooding. Stuart, give me some examples of what farmers need to do to ensure good water management. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, leaky dams and that sort of thing. And I'm interested in the funding element as well, because, you know, a leaky dam, it takes a couple of days to stick it in. There's a clear sort of, you know, cost associated with that. But then how do we fund the maintenance of it? How do we fund the fact that it's there at all doing that job in the environment? It's really easy for, and I'll be slightly controversial maybe, but it's really easy for a politician to stand in front of a great big piece of concrete uh, and you can see a legacy you can see it you can touch it the immediate reaction i am sure and and i'm sure emma gets fed up with it after every flood event i'm sure somebody suggests a big piece of concrete another six feet of concrete on top of what's already there is the answer it's visible it's tangible but actually we can't just keep building meter on meter on meter of concrete what do we do eventually we have a basically a great big concrete wall all around the uk yeah it's it's, it's fictional and unfortunately Things like leaky dams, things like changes of cropping, things like slowing that flow through more permanent pasture or through tillage techniques we use, they don't look like big pieces of concrete that are massive legacies, but actually are possibly more valuable sometimes than those pieces of concrete. So we've got to come up with a mechanism, whether it be through uh, through elms or whether it be through other funding mechanisms, we've got to find a way that puts the, the real value on it. Okay, So the value of that leaky dam. It's not the cost it takes to put the leaky dam in, it's the value of the protection it provides downstream. Now that's difficult economics because actually what you're trying to do is you're trying to put a value on something that might have happened and and you, yeah that's where you need to get into models and various other things but I'm very much of the view that, that if I am providing effectively a service to a community that is no different than a concrete wall against a river or against the coast or whatever it may be then I should absolutely be recognised and rewarded for the value that that provides but it's a difficult calculation so I've not got the answer but I think we just need to turn things on their head slightly and not look at what does it cost to do something it's also what is the value of doing that downstream? I was on a call yesterday with some colleagues of Emma's and some colleagues from Natural England, where actually there's a, a group of farmers I know of who made a proposition to the into the green infrastructure fund and actually looking to, to and it failed. But actually what we've now got is the Environment Agency and Natural England saying, well, actually, what can we do to help you? How can we help you put values on it? How can we help you endorse some of this? And I think that's how we need to start to, to look at some of these things. I 
I think there is also, and, and Emma touched again earlier on this, there will be private sector money in this area. You know, when we look at, at, at the additional benefits, so it's not just about flood protection. It's also about, well, actually, by changing that cropping, what does that deliver in terms of biodiversity benefit? What does that deliver in terms of a carbon sequestration benefit? And actually, how can we start to put some values on that? So actually, what you could end up with is the flood protection uh, value is is x but you may well have additional biodiversity or carbon or whatever other benefits over and above that that you could stack on top of that which then make it a very very attractive proposition too often in the past we've looked one dimensionally at solving problems so actually how do we feed people how do we stop floods how do we improve biodiversity the reality is we need to look at all of those things in balance and how we the, the mechanisms we put in place need to, to maximise all of those uh, variables we're to deliver what ultimately what a modern society wants us to deliver. Emma, you wanted to come in. Yes, I have a I have a background in finance. So one of the things that I have been encouraging colleagues at the Environment Agency at DEFRA to do is, is make sure that we are playing a full part in all of the work that is going on around green finance. Uh, we work very closely with the Green Finance Institute, which is working on uh, how to crowd in private sector investment into nature-based solutions. And one, sometimes the way to get into that space is through the net zero work that has uh, a much longer history because the way land is managed, you may be able to track that uh, value back to storing carbon more easily than the work that or the value that it brings uh, in terms of storing water. And if I look at some of the green bonds that have been issued by the water companies, sometimes the primary indicator they use is a carbon one, but actually what is being funded brings in a whole plethora of nature-based solutions and land management techniques, but it's just easier at this point in time for the investors to understand what is delivered from a carbon perspective. I was visiting uh, some flood meadows yesterday, and again, a brilliant example of how land can be used for many different purposes, but with that starting point of it is a floodplain meadow, and how private sector companies will ultimately want to invest inland solutions as part of their offsetting mechanisms is something that is also going to become increasingly important and may start delivering some of that investment that Stuart's, Stuart's been talking about that is going to be so vital for farmers and other land managers too. Stuart, you wanted to come back in as well. Yeah, and, and look, I, I agree with everything that, that Emma just said, but I also have some fears in this area, I think, as a, as a 
farmer, I reckon I must be being approached at least once a month at the moment by someone who wants to offset their carbon, buy my carbon, buy some biodiversity, you name it. It does feel a little bit like the Wild West out there, actually, in terms of it. And, and I also fear there will be farmers who sign up to deals that today look attractive, but actually don't have any robust matrix around them, that don't have transparency around them, that don't have rules around them. And in 10 years' time, well, there will be a huge hangover from those. And I think we this is where I think government has an important role to play, actually, around setting some of the rules around this, setting some of the, the transparency around this. And some of the standards institutes will also have a role to play, I suspect. So I think there's a big, big role for, for what Emma's just articulated. But I think there's also, um, I, I certainly have some fears that, that there are some, uh, some fairly sharp operators out there who will not do it for, for the public good and for all those other benefits, but could well land some farmers in, in hot water in years to come because they didn't realise what they were signing up. You need the environmental regulators to be working in lockstep with the economic regulators in lockstep with the financial regulators. Uh, this is another area where we've got to stop working in silos. We have uh, have just been asked as the Environment Agency to be part of a Treasury initiative that, again, is being supported. As the Secretariat is coming from the Green Finance Institute, which is looking at the taxonomy of how different environmental services and goods are classified. And I think that's fantastic that you're bringing together the different types of expertise, because Stuart's absolutely right. We've seen it before with emissions in and offsets in the past. We need to work at pace, but we need to work at pace in a properly regulated way so that we're delivering real benefits. Uh, we're not double counting, triple counting, etc. We're seeing real stuff happen on the ground, but also we need mechanisms that can allow us to unravel the unintended consequences because this is new territory for us all and uh, what we can't do is set off in one direction and find that we can't get out of that, that direction if we're ending up doing the wrong thing. Yeah, and, and look, just building slightly on that as well, I, I, I agree with that, but I also have a, a, a pretty selfish interest here. I, I also worry that there will be other parts of the, of the agri-food supply chain who look to come and take the credit for the carbon and the sequestration that's happening on farms. I'm pretty selfish about this, right? I'm the active farmer. It is me that is sequestering that carbon. It is me that is responsible for that. Um, and, and we are one of the, the very few sectors of the economy that are a sink as well as a source of carbon. Um, and we need to make sure that, that farmers are very aware of this. I get really excited about this area. I think it is a huge potential for the farming sector. But I also fear that there are a number of other people, whether it be in in commerce, whether it be in, in agri-food supply chains, that will look to effectively do that, to take that thing that's happening on farm to offset their emissions when actually the real value needs to be back on the person who's doing it themselves, which is the active farmer. It's interesting. We touched on this conversation in the first of the Land Unlocked series, this idea of, you know, what is the value of farming and that it's it's just, it's so much more than GDP. And, you know, 
you've articulated some of those things, both of you, today. But, but maybe as part of the, the excitement here, because we know for, for centuries, farming has, look, uh, the core of farming is food production, right? It's feeding an urbanised population that can't feed itself. That's what we do as farmers. But we also know we have delivered huge intangible benefits, whether it be landscapes, whether it be flood prevention, whether it be biodiversity. We've not always got that right, but we have delivered those. And actually, maybe this is a really massive opportunity to turn things that historically have been intangible into tangible things for farming. And then actually we can get to what the real value of farming is, is not the massively subsidised, if you like, food production piece, which never reflects the real value of that food production. Stuart, we're coming to the end of the programme and this is a fascinating discussion and I really don't want to curtail it. But at the same time, you know, thinking forwards to uh, the Climate Change Conference COP26 in November, if you were going to be addressing the main conference on the issue of agriculture, water and climate change, what would you say? What what would your key message be? For me, it's fairly straightforward. It's that farmers are absolutely part of the solution. We are up for uh, working in a different way. We see ourselves in that role. And ultimately, as a farmer, I see a big chunk of my role of delivering on a modern society's values. Now, that is about food production. It is about the standards we produce food to, but it's also about delivering against climate change, delivering against water protection. And let's see fresh water in the UK as an opportunity uh, and invest in it with pace, uh, because actually we really should be making much more of the water that's available to us here as previous generations have looked to do. Thanks, Stuart. Emma, it's very likely that you will be addressing the conference. So for you, in terms of land use, water and global warming, what are your central messages? It's about preparing the climate shocks that we are going to see that are already locked into the system. It's about making sure that we as we invest towards net zero, as we race towards net zero, that we're embedding resilience and nature's recovery into those investment decisions. Otherwise, we will be seeing our fantastic new technology washing away in a flood or melting in a heat wave. And it's about making sure that water is seen in the same light as carbon, that this is something that we are already experiencing and individuals, vulnerable communities, vulnerable countries are going to experience climate change through the water dimension far more quickly than uh, perhaps through other ways. And we just have to get ahead of our action to make sure we're ready for those climate shocks. Water, absolutely at the centre of land use, but also, as you say, absolutely at the centre of our response to climate change. It's been a fascinating conversation. That's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Emma Howard-Boyd and Stuart Roberts. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe to the Farmgate podcast so that you never miss an episode of Land Unlocked, which is being broadcast on the same channel. And then tell your friends, like us, review us and share our links. Land Unlocked is produced by the UK's Food Farming and Countryside Commission and the Farmgate podcast. You can find out more about us online at ffcc.co.uk and you can join the conversation by following us on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I've been Finlow Castain. Bye for now.